Aware Now, the official podcast for causes. Presented by Awareness Ties, Aware Now is rated O for original and organic content to raise awareness for the causes we're all tied to through personal stories and exclusive interviews. Tune in as we raise awareness a story at a time about topics that aren't always easy to talk about through conversations that are sometimes hard to have. Together, we are aware now. This is Limitless, an exclusive interview with Alex Lewis, interviewed by Allie McGuire. This is found in the World Edition of Aware Now magazine. A quad amputee, loving life and trying to make a difference while incorporating a little humor along the way, Alex Lewis. You didn't settle on the survive gear, you shifted higher into thrive. Not only for yourself, but for others, you're going above and beyond to do more for others who have less. Thank you so much for joining me today and having this conversation today. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. Uh, You know, for most, strep translates to sore throat. For you, it resulted in septicemia, which ultimately resulted in the loss of all four of your limbs. Yeah. In all that you've lost along the way, what have you gained in all of this? I think above all else, I've gained a lot of clarity as to um, just how important my life is. And I don't think I really understood that before I fell ill. Um, I was very fortunate. I had, a, I still have an amazing partner, Lucy, and my little boy, Sam, is not so little now, but just an absolute diamond. Um, and I don't think I really appreciated that enough when I had legs and arms. I was coasting. I wasn't working very hard. I wasn't working very hard with Lucy, with Sam. Um, and I think Strep came along at the right time uh, to you know, not only wake me up um, mentally, but also make me realize that you know the previous 33 years of my life were substandard, really. I should have done so much more, should harder. Um, should have listened, should have been more attentive. The list goes on. <laughs> there were a lot of flaws um, in me. And I think when when I fell ill, it made me fight really hard, not only to stay alive, but also to fight for Lucy, to fight for Sam, to fight to regain some kind of um, independence, uh, a life with the injuries that I sustained. Um, and I just saw the most incredible human kindness in the health system here in the UK. Uh, my plastic surgeon is now one of my best friends. The guy that saved my life, Jeff Watson, is also now one of my best friends. I mean, these guys just went above and beyond to not only save my life, but also try and give me a quality of life when I left hospital. Um, and I was trying to soak all this up in the sort of seven months I was ill. I don't think I really fully understood it until about two and a half, three years ago when I realized that I was actually living a better life with injuries like this than I was previously. Um, and that was like a, that was like a light bulb moment for me that I realized that actually what I've, what I've got now is way better than what I had then. Um, and it just instilled a, a fire to 
a will to just do more, do better, just be a better person, um, and just live in the present with an amazing family, amazing friends, amazing support network. And obviously it's gone on to get better and better as the years have gone by. Um, but I think, you know, the clarity in my my strength of mind, which I never thought I'd have, there's no way in a million years if you said to me, prior to falling ill, Alex, if you lost all your limbs in the course of, you know, a month in hospital, you know, what would you do? And I think if you'd asked me when I had legs and arms, I'd say, why well, I'd just give up. I wouldn't know what to do. But actually when I was faced with a situation, it didn't it didn't phase me and it and Lucy and I were seemed to just rise above it and enjoy the fight that came with it. And that's something that I never ever knew that I had. So it, yeah, it was a serious wake up call that you know, I wish I'd had <laughs> many years ago really. Wow, what an incredible, incredible insight. What an incredible gift, I suppose. Yeah, it was, um, you know, in reality now, if you said to me, I can give you your legs and arms back, um, I'd say, well, that's great, but I wouldn't want them. What I've achieved in the last seven years far outweighs what I achieved in my previous 33, 34. Um, you know, we have gone from strength to strength. And what we're working on now with, you know, university research, charities, uh, you name it, all the things that we're involved in, they are fascinating. And I have a, I have many, many reasons to get up in the morning, mm -hmm. many to put on my prosthetics to, you know, do all the things I need to do physically. Um, and, you know, just try and make a difference. And it really is you know, I'm, I'm just very lucky to be able to be living it. That's incredible. It's incredible, Alice. Um, you know, with not only your physical ability changing, and like you're saying, you know, in the course of a month so quickly, but also your physical appearance altered as well. Alex, how difficult was the transition to this new version of yourself? Um, so I remember being in intensive care in Winchester, uh, waking up and having, you know, survived a 3% chance of survival. And I remember waking up, looking at the ceiling, thinking, my goodness, what's going on? And I could see that my my limbs were black. They were they were dying in front of me. And, and the, the septicemia and the necrotizing fasciitis and all the other things that I had going on was trying to get to my heart to kill me. Um, and that was explained to me uh, later than I, I, I think I could have, I'd like to have known sooner to understand why I was turning black. I couldn't really understand it. And then they moved me to Salisbury, another hospital, and they never told me why I had to be moved from one to the other. It was just that they wouldn't continue my care in the, the Winchester where they saved my life. So I arrived in Salisbury and I get this kind of knockout blow from my plastic surgeon saying, we're well, going to lose your left arm above the elbow, we think we can save your your lower legs, you'll certainly lose your feet. Um, I think I can try and save your right arm with pioneering surgery, you're basically going to be a guinea pig for me, we're going to try something that's never been done before. And if it works, it'll be an absolute miracle, fantastic. And then another one saying, well, we think we can move parts of your shoulder onto your face, um, but that'll be about a year's time. 
again, it's a world first. It's never been done before, but we think we can do it. And then she, and then my plastic surgeon, bless her, she just wafted out of the room, and I was, I was lying there thinking, oh my god, you know, what am I going to do now? Uh, and you know, in reality, it was, I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand what was happening. Um, so, the uh, the theatre and all the the nurses and consultants were prepped, um, and in I went. And it was only when they explained that the strep was getting, trying to get to my heart that I understood that amputations were going to be necessary. I had no idea what it meant longer term down the line. I just knew that I wanted to survive. So seven months later, I'm a triple amputee. And I remember looking in the mirror for the first time, uh, and it was probably five months after I'd been in hospital, and the visualisation of me was mortifying. I arrived a six foot one, 13 and a half, 14 stone guy. And when I left in June of 2014, I was three foot 10 and just under six stone. So the, I, was, I was literally half the man when I arrived. Now, I remember we, we agreed to a, a newspaper article for a, a local a paper. And this guy came and took loads of photos. And when it was published, I think all the people that hadn't seen me were a horrified but I think it's one of the best things we ever did to throw ourselves out into the public like that mm. and say this is us now this is how it is you know it's only going to get better from here but what where, how you see me now is is really bad you know near death and I'm only going to get better from this point so when I actually came out of hospital I, I made a conscious effort to be seen in as many places I could go, whether it was our restaurant, whether it was shopping centres, out and about in the car. I needed people to see me to understand me. And I didn't want to hide away. And I, I didn't want to say, I felt that I owed it to the surgeons and to all the people that worked on me to be proud of what I still had. You know, the fact that I did have an arm that was working at that point, the fact that, you know, I am still alive, the fact that we could get prosthetics and things are going to get better down the line so I think you know I was pushed into doing it because I was a little bit wary but Lucy and my best friend were like no you've got to get out you've got to be seen in your condition there's no point hiding and I you know I, I got it and then you know I just think probably a year down the line I had fully accepted my disability I fully accepted my limbs and obviously using prosthetics has started and the rehab started and that whole journey went on. Um, but yeah, I just had to, I had to get ahead of it mentally. And I think in reality, facing quadruple amputation as severe as I am, is probably 95% mental, 5% physical. Struggles mm. in your head. Um, the physicality of it, you can cope with that if your head is right right as it can be um, and luckily for me my head has never once wavered to the point of you know wanting to hide away and not and not be seen in this condition that's that's so incredibly powerful because yeah I can imagine um, you know knee-jerk reaction would be like to hide to cut like you didn't you know if it was hard for you to see what you saw like for other people then too but to find strength to find empowerment in yourself and confidence in being seen and you know 
how incredibly, um, yeah, what an incredibly powerful concept, right? That it is so much here. There's such a physical um, change that's happened and knowing that it's 95% up here and everything yeah. else is secondary to that. That's, that's incredible. I mean, I remember when my son saw me for the first time and he hid behind his mum's legs. He was petrified of what he saw. He couldn't really look at me. Now, I was a stay-at-home dad for nearly three years before I fell ill. And that, that moment was just heartbreaking. You know, my heart at that point, A, it was trying to survive all this, but seeing my son and his reaction, just it cut it in half. And I didn't really know how I was going get, to get that back, how I was going to reconnect with my son. So... You know, if I didn't accept my physical difference, then he was never going to accept it. And everything that I've done in the last seven years has been for him to prove that whatever happened seven years ago has in no way halted some of the amazing things that I've gone on to do and things I'm going to, I'm going to do in the, in the future. You know, he made me fight harder than ever before to accept that this is it now. You know, I want my son back and I got him back mentally about five months later. Um, and now the relationship we have is stronger than ever. So with Mary Poppins, she would say probably a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Your remedy seems to be humor. I've watched a number of your interviews and read some things, some conversations you have had along the way. and. How has a good sense of humor and use of it helped in your own personal healing and in the healing of others? I think it just puts everyone's mind at rest, really, that I can joke about not having arms, you know, joke about not having legs. Um, I remember when they said to my mom and, and Lucy, my partner, to go away and you know, prepare to say your final goodbyes. We don't think Alex is going to survive the night. This is the third night I think I was in intensive care. And they went away. And I remember I was in Canada doing a, a talk for Robin Sharma at the Titan Summit. And um, I think it was the night before I was going to go on stage. And I, we were very honoured to be there. And we, we saw these amazing speakers for four days in a row. And these guys were world class. And there's, there's me and Lucy and we're sat there thinking, we are so out of our depth sat here. What are we doing here? <laughs> and we went for a, a, a dinner the night before and it was a sushi restaurant and I had to I had to get out of my wheelchair and I had to climb the stairs to get to the restaurant and then jump back in the wheelchair. And everyone was kind of mortified that I had to do this, but I had to put all the staff's mind at rest. Look, don't worry, I totally get it. You know, not everywhere is wheelchair friendly. And I'm very fortunate, like I can move around and get to places. And I was chatting to Lucy about it and I said, you know, that'd be quite good to mention that in the chat tomorrow. Um, and I said, look, darling, there's, there's one thing, I've, I've never asked you this. Um, when you were told to go away to prepare to say your final goodbyes, what were you going to say? You know, if I hadn't have made it through that night and if they had awoken me mechanically, what would you say to, you know, me, your partner, me, the, the man you're in love with? And uh, she was just picking up a sushi roll with chopsticks. She said, all I could think about was who was going to take out the bins. <laughs> when she when she said it, I mean, I just burst out in, into laughter, and that and that's how we've done it. You know, it's things like that that have just made the whole thing palatable, 
and how we kind of turned it on its head to, you know, be advantageous to us as a family um, and to everything that we do. You know, dark humour, I learned very early on from a lot of the military guys that had come back from Afghanistan who had lost limbs. Dark humour was the way forward. Um, and, you know, I was very fortunate not to have any kind of PTSD with what went on because I just had this amazing jovial relationship with everyone that I encountered, whether it was an anaesthetist who put me to sleep two days prior, my plastic surgeon, um, you know, all these people that worked on me. I was always polite and I just always saw the brighter side of everything that went on. Um, now, I knew I'd, I had a good sense of humour, but I never realised it would get me through how it has done in the last seven years. You know, and to be able to laugh and joke about it, you know, to be at ease at, at, at talking about it, you know, is mm -hmm. is fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, for Lucy and I, our, our relationship is based on humour. And we Brits are pretty sarcastic and, you know, <laughs> it, we're known for being this way. So, you know, I'm pretty much an archetypal Brit in my in terms of my style of humour. But yeah, it's got me out of some really dark places at times. And I'm thankful that, you know, I don't know how I got it, but I'm, I'm glad I've got it. Well, I think we all are too. It helps everyone. It's such a, a good example to follow um, for the difficult things that, that we all deal with on one scale or another, um, but to see the way that you use it and how you use it to um, cope with um, different situations, it's it's inspiring, for sure. I mean, it, it's incredible now. And, you know, I was chatting to a gentleman yesterday who's just gone through similar to me, um, and he's very early on in, in his kind of rehab and his recovery. And I said to him, I said, there'll come a point when you'll be around friends and you'll be laughing and joking. And then all of a sudden, one of them will say, oh, I've got this terrible backache and I don't know what to do about it. Now to you and I, that's nothing in comparison to what we have to deal with every day. And I said, as soon as your friends get to that point, that's when you know you've cracked it, that you've got, got ahead of it. And now they can be at ease talking to you about something, whether they cut their thumb, whether it's backache, whether it's a, a, a cold, whether it's whatever it may be. Um, and this guy laughed and he's like, you know, my, my mates are always like that. They're always moaning and moaning. And I said, well, you know, it's all relative. All these problems are relative to each other. You know, that cold for a certain person could be the worst they've ever gone through in terms of illness. You know, you, you just don't know. But when, when people can moan in your company about something so trivial, that's when you know you're you're going the right way about your recovery, and you know then you can laugh and joke about it. That's that's awesome. Um, you know, from fully abled to then disabled, your disability required a change in lifestyle for sure. Uh, you took that requirement and translated it to empowerment, um, not only for yourself but for others. I'm really just dying to know about the Wild Wheelchairs Project. Could you share the story? Yeah, so I, I when I um, I came out of hospital and I was sort of floating around, didn't really know what I was going to do, you know, work-wise. Um, and I did an interview for a local TV station and they introduced me to a, a military charity. And these guys were all ex-Special Forces, um, all missing limbs, PTSD, and just great, great guys. And uh, 
the head of the charity said, you know, do you want to join up? You know, we think your mindset would go really well with the injured lads. And we've never had a civilian join a military charity before, so you'd be the first one. And I was like, do you know what, I'm not doing that, so yeah, why not, let's do it, see what happens. And then he said, well, in seven days' time, we're skydiving, do you want to join? And I thought, <laughs> I just said yes immediately, not really thinking it through. And what then started was this whole raft of amazing adventures with these guys, but skydiving was fantastic. Um, then we went to Greenland and we kayaked around the southern tip, which was just phenomenal. Um, and then we went out to South Africa a couple of times, cage diving with great white sharks, all this sort of thing. Um, kayaking down the Orange River. But every adventure that I went on with these guys, I just, it was fantastic for personal development, incredible. But I knew that it just wasn't going to be enough for me. I didn't want to be these guys that just go into somewhere for two weeks, have a great time, and then, you know, almost parachute back out and go back home. I wanted to do a bit more for the disabled community that obviously over the years we've seen and heard of so many different problems. So I said, you know, the next trip I go on, I want to leave a legacy. I want to do something really work really good. And so I met this gentleman called David Collinson and he dreamed, he sort of dreamed up this amazing boys adventure um, with me and a few mates. And I said, look, that sounds great, but you know, can we do something in the country itself? What can we do to improve disability? Um, you know, you're going to be taking me along where we were going in the Simeon Mountains, they would never have seen a quadruple amputee. And I said, why don't we harness that and try and help other people in a situation? So we dreamt up the Wild Wheelchairs Project, which was to um, set up a wheelchair factory in Bakhadar in Ethiopia. And uh, this wheelchair factory, well, facility, was when we um, started the project, was just a very, very simple tin hut, no roof, um, and it was all incredibly rudimentary and the wheelchairs were not fit for purpose. You know, the, this, this was on the edge of the Simeon Mountains. The terrain was rugged to say the least. Um, and so we decided that we would give them the expertise and we raised some money to enhance the facility, make it waterproof, better power, uh, but also make wheelchairs affordable. You know, the chair that I sit in every day is about £6,000. Um, the average income for an Ethiopian is $1,000 a year. So there's no way they can afford what we have. Um, and now we make wheelchairs in that factory for $200. Um, and NGOs can afford them, charities can afford them, and we're now equipping people in Bakhadar. But we also wanted to connect Bakhadar with Southampton University, which is near where I'm from. Um, and I do, the project was born out of that university with the kind of end-user research model that we try and um, accomplish as part of the trust, where I give up my time to be a guinea pig to these students that want to make arms, make legs, uh, make wheelchairs, make all sorts of adaptions that they think are really cool. And so we jumped up this four-wheeled hand cycle um, that would have battery power and then a solar panel on top that would charge the battery as we cycle up the mountain. So the whole thing was completely we were off our heads, I think, just dreaming it up, let alone trying to make it happen. And at the back end of 2019, we we took Emma Bet, a double amputee um, from Ethiopia, and her and I, we cycled up Ethiopia's highest mountain in, I don't know, two and a half weeks with some amazing friends. You know, we scaled the mountain together. The guy that hauled me to the top of the mountain was the man that saved my life. 
seven years previous, Jeff Watson. So that moment for me was just, it was astonishing, you know, just to get a double amputee if he opens to the top of that mountain, let alone a quad and, you know, everyone else. Um, but for Jeff to get me to the top, you know, the fact that I'm only really there because of him and his team was just so powerful, unbelievably powerful. Um, and the factory is making a difference to people that need it. And we want to try and roll it out to places like Mongolia. It's about giving people in remote regions access to better equipment. You know, that's the bare bones of it, really. Um, I'm fortunate I live in the UK. You know, there, there is a lot available. It's hellishly expensive. It's expensive for everyone. You know, in my lifetime, I need around three and a half to four million dollars um, just in prosthetics and equipment. And to me, that's just insane. Um, so for us now, it's all about making assistive technology much, much cheaper, um, affordable for all. Global access, I guess, is the, the key phrase on that. You know, it's, it's all about global access. The people that need the equipment to get them to be able to go back to work, to get them to, you know, be encouraged in their community to go to work, to be seen as being able to help and not disabled and just staying at home, you know, just carrying them really. Um, and it's, yeah, it's by far one of the best things that I've involved in. I'm very fortunate to have gone along with this idea with David and I and everyone else that got behind us and, and made it happen. So it's an incredible project. Thank you so much for sharing that whole story. Um, and what incredible work, what needed work there's so many advances in our society with technology and um but as you're saying it's the access to it especially in these forgotten spaces and places in this world where there just isn't the access um thank you for the work that you do and inspire other people to do alex thank you well, it's, it's the least i can do really in you know for the life that i lead i think being able to do that is just a tip of the iceberg for what we want to try and do long term so this is a start of many hopefully great projects to come it's incredible well speaking of incredible projects i do want to speak about project limitless because there are some who are willing to lend a hand but you with project limitless want to give an arm you want to do more you uh <sighs> are doing something really interesting here. So I'd love to hear the story about Project Limitless and your goal for serving children in need of prosthetics. So I remember the Mitch charity sent me out to the US to get an accurate cost on my disability. And as I said, that came up, came in about three and a half, four million dollars. So I flew back to the UK thinking, what on earth am I gonna to do to try and <laughs> raise that money? you know, earn that money. I need prosthetics to be able to go to work. Um, and if I can't afford them to begin with, how the hell am I going to do it later on down the line? And it was just a chance meeting with a, a, a great student called Sam Wilson, who was studying at Imperial in London. And he was working on something called muscle whispering technology, which is basically, he devised a system where I could put on a bionic arm and I would be able to operate a robotic arm in space to fix a satellite with just the noise of my muscles operating the arm. 
So he tried to explain this to me and I had no idea what he was talking about. I've got to be honest, I'm not incredibly tech-minded. I'm listening to this thinking, what on earth is he going on about? And he said, well, you know, we can't get people to be guinea pigs on the work. And I said, oh my goodness, I am the best guinea pig you can possibly get. Whatever you want, you can just have it. And uh, he was like, you know, don't promise, don't promise us too much. And I said, no, honestly, if this is going to possibly improve my life down the line, then I want to be right there at the, at the beginning. And I want to be able to work on it along the line. So I went to Imperial and we started this uh, relationship with the university where I was a guinea pig to probably 30 or 40 students in the last four or five years on various projects from legs to muscle whispering tech to prosthesis to um, bionic arms to arms that do surgery to stroke rehab, all sorts of things. And I met a student there called Nate and Nate was just, he's like a puppy, Nate. He's constantly jumping up and down and bubbly and just life. And he was uber invested in a project saying, he said to me, look, I'm going to build you a bionic arm. It's going to be incredible. It's going to have moving fingers, a wrist unit. Whatever you need, you're going to have it in that arm. And I said, well, that sounds amazing. I said, how many, you know, how long have you got to do that? Are we talking two, three years? And he said, no, it's a six month project. And I remember thinking, you've got no chance. Good luck with that to try and make all that in six months, that would be a miracle. But along the way, he he just showed initiative and he listened to what I was saying, but he couldn't really understand how he would implement that in his project. So at the end of the project, he created this god awful looking arm. It was terrible, it didn't work very well. And it was not fit for purpose. And I, I gave him honest feedback. I wasn't gonna lie to these guys. And uh, Nate came, uh, came and saw me afterwards and said, look, what do you need from a prosthetic, a prosthetic arm? And I said, it needs to be much more simplified than Barnick in reality, because Barnick is too expensive. I said, what you're looking for is something that's comfortable, affordable, and functional. I said, if you can get a marriage of those three things together in an arm, then you've got something that's really, really powerful and really useful. And quite frankly, different than what's on the market at the moment. And we discussed the idea about buying it online and different sizing and all this sort of thing. And then Nate and I have ended up working with each other for four years, really, on and on. And he set up a company off the back of the idea called Koala. And, you know, he, he came back to me and he said, look, I've designed all these arms, can you test them? And I said, yeah, sure. And so we worked on developing the, the soft shell prosthetic, um, which is basically designed with trainer technology in mind. So rather than this hard carbon fiber plastic that I have to adorn every day, to give me independence. We're looking at something much more, more comfortable, something much more lightweight, and also something that children can feasibly use. Most prosthesis for kids are heavy, unattractive, difficult to use, and they're not gonna, their passion to take up the use of the prosthetic just isn't there, because it's just not cool, frankly. Mm -hmm. On this cool arm, um, and we, we partnered with a charity called the Douglas Violet Foundation, and then we set up Project Limitless with, with an aim to provide every child under the age of 10 in the UK with a free prosthetic arm, any child who needs one. Um, and we, we hit our target, you know, we, we, we've done almost, I would think, over three quarters of the kids in the UK now and given them a free arm. But we, we want to extend it to under 18s to begin with. Um, with the idea that if we can get it right in the UK, 
then we'll spur out and we'll do it in places like Sierra Leone, Uganda, Sri Lanka, India, China, um, places where prosthesis development design is fantastic, but it's just too expensive. Mm -hmm. So the arms that we make, which are is less than a smartphone. You know, in reality, this arm that I wear is about fifteen thousand pounds. You know, the arms that we create vary from about four to eight hundred pounds. Um, and we're seeing kids being able to ride a bike for the first time, use a scooter, paint for the first time, even realise that they weren't what their dominant arm is. You know, from not having a prosthetic, they've always been using something the wrong arm. So now they can use their dominant arm and they can write, and it just helps them at school and in lockdown with you know homeschooling we see benefits of something that was just a a fag packet idea in honesty five years ago four and a half years ago and to see where it is now is just you know fantastic and it's it's just a shiny example of end user-led design you know what these students try and create they never ask the people that are going to use them you know and i i, I see that as as backward really you know we should be whatever our disability may be we should be right at the forefront of that tech coming forward yes. it should find around us um and so I'm a, I'm a big advocate of that and koala and and the guy sam wilson who we met right at the beginning um he and i co-founded a company called surge technology with two other guys and we're now looking at um diagnostic treatment and monitoring of parkinson's disease so it doesn't to benefits in prosthesis and prosthesis design it's now gone on to aid Parkinson's you know things spur off these ideas and these kids are just uber passionate and they want to work with real people they don't want to work with an idea they want us to give them the feedback and the encouragement and the, the guidance of you know what we think may be good and, and they can account for that better and ultimately we get a much better product at the end of it um, and Limitless Project is a, a prime example of that. Um, and yeah, I'm just really super proud of Nate and his guys, really, and turning it around and listening and creating a really cool lifestyle product. You know, it's not medical, it's more tailored to the user to be a bit, a bit more of a fashion item than it is a prosthetic. You know, so I think it's just, you know, for me, it's always been thinking outside the box in the last seven years, and these ideas have been, you know, great examples of that of that style of thinking. And wow, so many things you just said there. Um, one specifically, I, I think about. You know, we talk a lot, especially when it comes to people who are disabled, who have one disability or another, and we hear the word more and more inclusion. That within society, there has to be this degree of inclusion. Um, and to know that we are, we, are, we are all people, regardless of the ability or disability, that there has to be this universal design of life. And when you look at inclusion, not just within society, but inclusion in the process, like inclusion, like you're saying, like, why are we not starting with the user, you know? Um, I the end user should be the, the beginning, right? It should be the, the beginning user of the yeah. long, a long study which I'm better. Um, I think I think I just assume that's how it happened. 
with these products coming onto the market. I assumed that all this was going on. And when I actually got access to the universities and found out that it wasn't going on, I was absolutely mortified. And I couldn't believe that in this day and age, we weren't using all that we had around us in terms of different people with different disability. Um, but in reality, you know, do they want to spend the time? Do they want to give up their time to do that? Um, you know, and how do we make that happen? But all the people that we've included in all, all sorts of these projects, they just really want to make better kit for them, their friends, to make family more in included in the project. You know, I found right at the beginning that everybody was focused on me. What does Alex need? Does he need arms, legs? What does he need? How do we get it? How do we make it happen? Nobody was actually chatting to Lucy saying, how's Sam getting to school? How, how are you going to work every day and come and see Alex in hospital? You know, there was just this whole focus around me and for me, I think, in terms of the inclusion of the family, they, they've got to live with the prosthetic as well. They've got to live with it. They've got to understand the kit. So if they're involved in the process from the beginning, it makes their life much easier. You know, it's not just me coming home with a cool toy. Don't get me wrong, my son loves some of the toys that I come home with. He thinks they're great. You know, all these things he gets to play with. But he needs to understand it. You know, he is my mini occupational therapist I need a Formula One team with all the things that go wrong with my kit. And my 10-year-old son understands it and can fix it. So he's learned along the way with me. But some of this kit is really complicated and a 10-year-old isn't going to be able to fix it. So then it means that the person that's got the problem needs to travel, take a day out of their schedule, go somewhere to get it fixed. It might not be fixed and it's sent to them. You know, you might need something else that takes three months to order in. You know, all these problems have massive time delay on just the use of living a life, let alone going to work, doing amazing things. And it's just making it easier for all concerned, really. I think, I think we've raced ahead with tech. And don't get me wrong, I mean, all this technology is absolutely incredible and it's astounding the people that dream it up. But I think it has left a hole in the middle for people that don't have the money, that can't afford it, but are still looking for solutions. And I think this is where end users like me come in come into our own you know we can make a slight difference in that void and try and make it better for all concerned with whatever disability it may be well thank you for being an incredible end user that really wants to get involved in beginning the process that is more inclusive um, I love how you say not just for the user but also for the family that we are part of something bigger than ourselves um, as individuals and you know just humanity in general and for us to realize that and apply that to all aspects of our life yeah I mean life is incredibly precious <laughs> you know it's it's a it really is a gift and you know I, I was so close to losing mine and because I survived you know, I've got on to getting involved in things that I'd never have dreamt of in a million years prior to falling ill. Um, and I just think, you know, the last seven years, as I say, have just, they've been phenomenal. And I think they will only get better uh, in time. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really lucky guy. I have great support. And, you know, we, all we want to do now is just try and make a real difference. Well, I think you are very much doing exactly that um thank you so much for for sharing all of this with us alex thank you for your story thank you for helping us all become a bit more aware now
Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Produced by Awareness Ties, Limitless featured Alex Lewis, interviewed by Ali McGuire, podcast intro track by Davis Beck, episode soundtrack by Soul Rising. Thank you for listening to Aware Now. To read our magazine, watch our broadcast, or join our community, be sure to visit our website, awarenessties.us.